Chapter Seven of Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. The Lancashire Revolution. The boast is often made that the Great English Revolution of sixteen eighty eight was a bloodless revolution. There were episodes, nevertheless, that seemed to belie that statement. Similarly, it may be said that the Lancashire Revolution, which came a century later, and whose consummation was not reached in nearly so short a time, was bloodless. Yet there were episodes, such as those at Shude Hill and Peterloo and elsewhere, which seemed to show that its birth did not take place without throes. This Lancashire Revolution concerns us closely here, in so far as it changed the face of the land between Ribble and Mersey, throwing over it, as it were, a mantle of smoke-laden cloud, and sowing it thickly with great and busy centres of industry. So thickly, indeed, that you pass from one to the other through continuous lanes of houses. Sowing it, too, with forests of tall chimneys that have blotted out much that was beautiful. And this transformation has set the teeming population that flock to these hives of ceaseless labour, problems in the social and economic spheres, that are not by any means solved today, in spite of the efforts for many decades of statesmen and politicians, of philanthropists and economists, and of leaders in industry and labour. And having blotted out, as we say, or at any rate besmirched much that was beautiful in outdoor nature, it gradually substituted for these lost beauties much that was beautiful in art and in architecture, in museums and galleries, in parks and pleasure grounds, and many other treasures that are the pride of the great centres of population. While, as the revolution progressed, it evolved the majestic proportions and graceful curves of the great locomotives and the giant liners, the rhythmic swing of the huge beam engines that fascinated you as you watched them, the fine precision and gliding motion of forests of throbbing machinery, the whirl of turbines and electric armatures, the pendulum-like march of the mules backwards and forwards like things of life, all the creation of man's brain and working his will. It has given us eventually such masterpieces as St. George's Hall, Liverpool. Is there a more striking building in the country? And higher up in the same city, the delicately beautiful Lady Chapel of a cathedral, that will, when at length it is completed, be the largest in the kingdom. It has given us buildings like the Town Hall, Exchange and Law Courts in Manchester, the structures that flank the principal square at Preston, the Town Hall at Rochdale, and the various municipal and public buildings of all the great towns. Out of its very necessities has sprung a philanthropy whose results are seen in long vistas of hospitals and in healing institutions scattered broadcast over the county. We pass over as mere episodes, not seriously touching the history or progress of Lancashire, and certainly not affecting its outward appearance, events like the rising in favour of the old pretender in 1715, which was checked at Preston, and the march of Prince Charlie through Lancashire and back thirty years later. There are picturesque elements in the second, it is true, and Ainsworth took these events as the themes for two of his historical novels, which are not in any way comparable with his story of the Lancashire witches. Still less successful, perhaps, is Halliwell Sutcliffe's reference to the forty-five in his Rycroft of Withens. It has been left curiously to a number of lady writers to portray in fiction some of the features of the great revolution of which we are speaking, to Mrs. Linnaeus Banks, Mrs. Louisa Potter, Mrs. Elizabeth Gaskell, and, for some graphic touches of Lancashire life during the Cotton Famine, 
we might mention Mrs. Francis Hodgson Burnett. Mrs. Francis Blundell's stories refer rather to the life of the non-industrial areas. The meaning of the struggle to those who felt the brunt of the change has been told by Samuel Bamford, and much is also reflected in the dialect writings of other Lancashire men, such as John Collier, Edwin Waugh, and Ben Brierley. It is only fair to say that while Lancashire was absorbed during the last quarter of the 18th century and the first half of the 19th in the progress of this revolution, she was always ready to bear her arm and support the country in the long wars that occupied so much of that period. The roots of the revolution lie deep down in the history of the whole district. The textile industry grew up largely in the hilly districts, where men were, as we have already said, painfully taking in the land from the stubborn moors. A graphic picture of this intaking is drawn from Halliwell Sutcliffe's Through Sorrow's Gates. While this slow work was in progress, the hardy and thrifty men who were prosecuting it had especially in the winter ample leisure for other occupations, and hence there sprang up the custom of combining the work of keeping small farms with occupations such as spinning and weaving, the former being consigned largely to women and children, the latter to the men, Manchester becoming eventually the collecting and distributing centre, partly because of its geographical position at a point where many valleys converge, partly no doubt because it stood at the crossing of two main roads, originally Roman, partly on account of its situation on the Irwell, which, as we have seen, was diverted in geological ages. Quite recently, in a history of Halifax, some extracts have been published from the diary of one of the farmer weavers of whom we have been speaking. Many of these early representatives of the Lancashire trade held their small estates by copyhold of the lord of the manor, and the estate would often consist of land that was at one time afforested. I notice, for example, as an illustration of this fact, that the inscription on one face of the Pilgrim's Cross Memorial, which stands high up on Holcombe Moor, and which would lie, I think, within the bounds of the ancient forest of Tottington, records that it was set up by the copyholders of the manor, which seems to show that the ancient copyhold tenure still persists there, at any rate in name. In practice it is, I suppose, hardly distinguishable from freehold. In these early days, spinning and weaving were carried on largely in the homes of the people, the weaving at the large low windows of the cottages and farmhouses, some of which remain today, and are actually called loom houses. Certain operations were more conveniently performed in mills, and at this period as well as later, when machinery largely displaced hand labour, these mills were placed not only on streams, but if possible where streams met, where there was not only a quantity of water, but a good fall. This will explain the position of most of the great cotton towns, though Oldham seems to form a curious exception. The impossibility of providing yarn for the looms by the old spinning wheel turned inventive minds to the problem of constructing spinning machinery, and it is not so well known that it might be that at the Chadwick Museum at Bolton a splendid collection of the early machines may be seen, illustrating the evolution of the mule, while Hall of the Wood, hard by, is preserved for posterity as the home of its inventor. It is a curious fact that not one of the great galaxy of inventors who contributed to this result was a Manchester man. Improved spinning machinery produced a glut of yarn, and then came the power loom, the invention of a southerner, and with it the introduction of steam power and improved means of communication, and the factory system, 
and the migration of the population to the towns and the great transformation of south lancashire from an agricultural to a manufacturing district beyond this point our present task does not require that we should pursue the story with all the phases of the industrial revolution with its social and economic results with the struggle for representation parliamentary and local with the story of chartism with the exploitation of the labour of women and children the long series of factory acts the removal of the duties on corn the establishment of the cooperative system the development of industrial combination the enormous expansion of trade the fillip given to this by the construction of a ship canal with all these closely interwoven as they are with the story of industrial lancashire we are not here concerned at this point therefore we conclude what we had to say on the historical development of the county we spoke of lady writers nowhere however are the phases of this change more faithfully pictured than in the writings of dr james kay afterwards sir james kay shuttleworth father of the present lord shuttleworth in his pamphlet for example on the condition of the working classes in the cotton towns and in his novels ribblesdale and scarsdale it is good to know that the life of this man is in preparation. End of chapter 7